Hey there, and welcome to Now a Mem. This is a new podcast series to discuss what it's like to be a man in the 21st century, and how feminist issues are relevant to the lives of men and boys. It's been set up by researchers in the Centre for Research into Violence and Abuse at Durham University in the UK. My name is Dr Stephen Burrell, and I'm a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow. The podcast is mainly hosted by myself and Sandy Ruxton, who's an Honorary Research Fellow. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Stephen. So each episode is going to be based around a conversation with an expert. That could be a practitioner, an activist, an academic, someone who's got an in-depth knowledge of the issues we're going to be looking at. And we'll be asking them about their work and the research they're doing, as well as exploring their own personal experiences of doing work related to masculinity and gender equality and how they got involved in the area. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Uh, Today, we're talking to Professor Bob Pease. Bob's an academic, he's an activist who's been involved in pro-feminist politics and campaigns to end men's violence against women for several decades. Yeah, Bob is an adjunct professor in the Institute for Social Change at the University of Tasmania in Australia, as well as being an honorary professor in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at Deakin University. Um, And he's published widely in the fields of men and masculinities and critical approaches to social work practice, um, and has also authored or co-edited more than 10 books. Um, And some of his most recent books include The Excellent Facing Patriarchy, From a Violent Gender Order to a Culture of Peace, um, and the second edition of his book Undoing Privilege, Unearned Advantage and Systemic Injustice in an Unequal World, I believe is coming out um, in December this year. That's correct, correct, Stephen, yes. Oh, brilliant. Okay, we wanted to speak to Bob because one of the things he's been writing a lot about lately is the connections between men, masculinities and climate change and how we need to recreate men's relationships with nature. Um, This is obviously something which is very important, but it didn't seem to get much of a look in at COP26. So so hi, Bob. Thanks for speaking to us today. I I know it's pretty late over there in Australia now. We wanted to dive straight in and say, you know, what did did you make of COP26, both in general and more specifically in the way masculinity issues were or were not addressed? Well, I mean, it seems pretty clearly from what I've been able to observe from from this part of the world that they were not addressed in any explicit way at all. And um, and I have to uh, apologise on, on behalf of the Australian people for the appalling um, presentation of our Prime Minister, who in, in many ways, who's policy in relation to climate change is, is almost a, a caricature of the kind of way in which some men advocate what's called the technological fix. That is, technology will save us. And so our Prime Minister's approach to the problem is that technologies that haven't even yet been invented are going to come along and they're going to enable us to fix the problem. So we don't really need to do anything urgent in in the short term. And the our conservative politicians have taken the watering down of the statement about um, rather than phasing out coal of actually kind of reducing coal as a green light to go ahead and um, and fund more coal-fired uh, power stations. So look, it's I was very, very disappointed and it reflected the kind of masculinism that I see as part of the problem you know, when it comes to responses to climate change. We, we treat it as a scientific or technical problem 
And of course, it is partly that, but it's also a moral and political problem. And technical solutions are not going to save us. Um, and this notion that, um, you know, the technological fix that science and technology will save us in the future um, allows us to move away from our responsibility to to act now to address the issues. Yeah, you know, I can I can obviously see how you must be disappointed by the Australian stance mm. in particular. Obviously, not they're not the the only offenders in this regard. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I wondered if you'd seen the the photograph of the official photograph of lots of well, all almost exclusively male leaders standing together in a kind of phalanx, you know, and, yes. and whether you had some reflections on, on the sort of way masculinity is presented and what that says to to other groups as well. Yes. Well, I mean, in, I haven't seen that particular photograph, but I, I've seen one very, very similar to it that was taken at the previous COP conference. And I've, I've used it as a slide at my, in some of my gender and and disaster talks because it, it 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 represents visually so well the 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 kind of masculinist nature of the of responses to the problem that um i mean it's it's interesting for me because i'm i've come to the issues of climate change and global warming and environmental destruction fairly late in my academic career this has not been an area that i've actually had a, an intellectual engagement with until quite recently and, and and maybe it might be useful just to talk about how I kind of moved into this area because it's a little bit um, it doesn't come out of my earlier involvement um, but mm -hmm. in back in 2009 we had major bushfires in in this country that raged across uh, many of the different states of Australia. And there was significant loss of life, of human life, of animal life, and destruction of fauna. And um, our, our skies were full of smoke for, for weeks and weeks after even the fires had died down. But it was in the context of this that a number of feminist women who were involved in the community health movement started to talk to women who started reporting much higher levels of violence by male partners in the aftermath of these fires. And uh, men who'd never been physically violent before became violent. Men who might have been controlling and might have occasionally lashed out became more consistently abusive and violent. And and the the women approached me to say, look, we're trying to make sense of why men might be more abusive and violent following a disaster. You know, can you, we'd like you to bring a masculinity lens to this. And although I hadn't been involved in any disaster work before, I had been, had done some work with male peacekeepers who were dealing with the trauma of war and, and trying to manage their responses back into civilian life. And I, and I, the more that I started to, hear the voices of the men because they the women had conducted some interviews with men about how they dealt with the aftermath of the fires and and um and i started to see the kind of parallels there and and i was invited to kind of present a kind of way of making sense of this you know what why would a men mm. become more abusive and violent following a disaster and and it so it led me to kind of get immerse myself in disaster studies, a new field of work for me. And and I was asked to present a paper at a conference launching this report on 
on men in the aftermath of the fires. And at that conference, I met a, a U.S. academic, uh, Elaine Anderson, who'd written extensively on women and disasters. And we started talking to each other. And she said, look, why don't we do a book on men, masculinity and disaster? No one's done it before. Why don't we kind of bring a masculinity lens to disasters? And I thought, what, what a great idea. So we invited people from around the globe to write to write chapters. And, and the more that I got into looking at the impact that um, disasters had on men, the more that I became aware of the impact men have on disasters. You know, it was like one of those moments where you just kind of flip it and think, oh, I'm looking at the way that disasters shaping men, but but men have a heavier ecological footprint than women do. Men are, you know, and as represented in that um, in that photo you refer to, men are the, the leaders of governments and corporations that are responsible for addressing the issue, and and um, and men are also dominate the the kind of climate change denial kind of groups as well. You know, I started to become really interested in the whole way in which men, masculinity and patriarchy, issues that I'd been writing about for many, many years, really seem deeply connected to global warming. And, and, and of course, eco-feminists have been writing about this since in the 70s. So I, I went back and, 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 re, and re-read the kind of eco-feminist literature. And, and that really was important important work that had been done and inspired me but there was very little written about well what can we do about Mm -hmm. it and how can we engage men with it and so so that was how i started to shift my intellectual work uh which had previously been hadn't been addressing this issue at all it just became the connections just became so much more clearer to me I mean, I'm fascinated in the journey that you've been on there. And also, you know, I mean, it's disturbing what you say about uh, um, the extent of violence post-disaster. But mm. I know you've also written, interestingly, about the importance of men's relations with with key issues like risk, heroism, trauma, grief, mm. the, the emotional impacts. Do you mm. want to say a bit about that as well? I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm collapsing quite a lot of issues there yeah, um, yeah. into one. but uh, And I know you've written about I, each of those, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, one of the, well, when I started to, to look at the, the way in which um, men are contributing to ecological de- destruction and came to the view that we we as men needed to rethink our relationship to nature. And, and of course, the whole, one of the tenets of, of dominant forms of masculinity, of course, has always been about uh, men presenting ourselves as invulnerable and in control. And in, and in fact, one can understand much of the, the grief and the reactive responses of those men um to to the bushfires as i mean men being men unable to control this raging wildfire out of control you know men not having the ability to control the fire and men who believe they have to be in control and feeling that they were not in control and also the the i remember one man said to me at one stage oh don't let the bastards see you sweat like, don't reveal your vulnerability. Don't believe. Don't don't, uh, don't reveal any sense of weakness. And so, men men have never been very good at at allowing vulnerability to come to the fore. And and until you allow that vulnerability to come to the fore, you can't really 
go through the process of grief. And so the emotional responses get turned into to abuse and anger and violence. And, and so I, I started to think more and more generally then about how we, we as men, and maybe it's also partly too, because as I become older, I also become much more aware of being, being physically vulnerable than I was when I was a younger man. And, um, but I became much clearer about how masculinity is so much shaped around invulnerability and being in control. And, and it's often the lack of empathy and compassion we have for the vulnerability of others that allows men to be abusive and violent. And I started to think maybe what we need to try to do is to foster in men a greater sense of vulnerability. And that means acknowledging our emotions and feeling responses to what's going on around us in the world. I mean, if we, as the more that I've become connected to the issue of global warming and climate change, the more frightened I become about the future. Uh, I, the, more, the more vulnerable I feel in relation to, to what's happening to the planet and and until we as men in particular um, start to feel that vulnerability start to feel distressed about the the future of, of the planet and, and what's potentially going to happen we're not going to be motivated to do anything about it because we just re retreat to our notion that well look we'll fix it we're, we're in control and we can control nature and um, rather than, and also we see ourselves as separate from nature. We have to come to recognise the way we're entangled more with nature and and not only feel more compassion for our fellow human beings, but more compassion for uh, for non-human animals. When I think of the loss of, uh, of, of animal life following those bushfires and when I, when I think of the destruction of the environment, we, we need to feel... And my Aboriginal brothers, who who have this deep sense of connection to land, um, and you know a deep sense with, of land as a, as a living force, and and um, you know we as as white fellows here in this country, we have so much to learn from our Aboriginal brothers to teach us about the importance of respecting land, respecting nature, and and recognise the way we're entangled with it and, and allowing ourselves to be more emotionally vulnerable, to become more embodied and rather than disconnected. I mean, this is part of the problem with masculinity. We're, we're not embodied. We're not, in, we're not, we don't acknowledge our entanglement, our relationship with, with others and including non-human others on the planet. And, and um, so this is a, a journey where the ideas are new in so many ways for me as I move into new territory, particularly moving into the, the post-human, but there's a sense of resonance as well um, with some of my previous work and a sense of connection. So in some ways it all feels like it's a, it's a natural move for me to, to be moving in this direction. So, so uh, essentially what you're saying is that it's important for men to connect with emotion as a key prerequisite for, for taking action. I think that's part of it. Um, and, and I know myself, like when I started doing work with engaging men some years ago, because as well as being an academic, I've always been an activist. I've always been kind of working outside of the academy as well. 
And back in the 80s, some colleagues and I designed what we call patriarchy awareness workshops. And we modeled them on racism awareness work that I had previously had some involvement with as a participant. And I can remember, I remembered at the time when I was reflecting back on my involvement in a racism awareness workshop, how emotionally powerful that workshop was. So when I started thinking about how do I engage men, rather than thinking about what I'd learned from social work or what I... Um, I actually thought about what I'd learned from anti-racism work and 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 many of the exercises that were part of that anti-racism work I adapted and 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 so and many of them were about creating an emotional response in men um, that because I felt that if I can get men to actually feel distressed about what women experience under patriarchy and about women in their own lives experience, if I can get them to make connections between what we know about violence against women and and elicit from men some sort of emotional response from that, then I feel that I've got a much more receptive base in which to then talk to men about what we do. Because if men are not connected emotionally, if I as a man don't feel distressed about the the levels of pandemic levels of violence against women in the world, what is there to motivate me to to want to address that to change it? If you know, if I'm disconnected emotionally from it, and and, and of course you know, I just I can give a lecture on the statistics, but I'm not going to connect emotionally by giving a lecture to men. I need to involve them in a in a process, a, a process of reflection and introspection, and 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 setting up some activities and and things to that are, are likely to remove some of the barriers that men have that that push things back that create discomfort. So creating that emotional discomfort, I think, is really important. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with um, so much of what you say, Bob. I think it's really powerful and important. I suppose one thing that comes to my mind is obviously the climate crisis is incredibly urgent. So, you know, we need massive radical change right now, basically. So, yeah. you know, what what solutions do you think your perspective offers in in that respect? And and I was wondering if you had any reflections as well on on you know how you think men should relate to environmental activism, for example, because we've actually often seen women at the forefront of of m- many different forms of environmental activism recently. So, yeah, did you have any thoughts on on yeah, look, I think that it's been interesting. Green politics in, in this country has been quite interesting in that because, um, as you say, Stephen, we know that women seem to be more concerned about it, the environment than men are. Women, even though men dominate the organisations that are responsible for addressing the problem, when we look in civil society and social movement politics, women and increasingly now young women, of course, um, girls, um, I mean, in terms of you think about the school strikes, for example, mm. um, are, are leading the way, and and often the the way in which some green activists have responded to that has been to say, well, look, if we're going to get more men engaged in environmental activism, we have to to present it as being manly to do it. I mean, this has been a really interesting tension because mm. the Greens are the political party in Australia, the, you know, strong climate um, change focus. 
um, went through a, a shift in leadership some years back from um, a female leader of the Greens to a male leader. And there was a strong message coming through that if we're going to engage more men in environmental politics, we have to deal with the perception that somehow or other being concerned about the environment is feminine. And so we have to make green politics more masculine. And and I've even to the point of, of um, when, we, you know, you know that dictum, of course, real men eat meat. So masculinity is connected to meat consumption. Mm. Well, there's even been a move to make an argument, real men are vegans. <laughs> so if you're a real man, you're a vegan rather than a meat eater. And, and so there's been this move to try to masculinize mm. um, environmental politics, get more men involved. And I just think that is so problematical because it's the, if masculinity and masculinism and patriarchy are at the heart of the problem, reframing it to demonstrate that you're a real man by becoming a vegan or that you you get you can demonstrate your masculinity through your engagement with environmental action i don't i see that as 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 deeply problematical and i think this is partly the problem too with the the move afoot among some pro feminist scholars to promote what's called eco-masculinities or ecological masculinity, that we we need to construct an alternative caring ecological masculinity. So even so though that's the general kind of move has been to go in those directions. I, I'm critical of those moves because I I think that they they reinforce a kind of gendered essentialism and they reinforce men's commitment to masculinity and to the gender binary. And the gender binary, I think, is always going to be hierarchical in a patriarchy, and it's always going to favour masculinity above femininity and men above women. So my dilemma is my, my solution, which is a much more radical one, but a much more difficult one to... I think to develop a movement around, but it is that I genuinely believe that we actually have to encourage more men to disconnect from our commitment to a gendered essentialist identity as men. Um, I mean, I can remember years back, uh, I would um, sometimes be accused by some of my, <clears throat> you know, the men's rights men that I would engage with at different times as being a, a traitor to my gender. You know, you're a gender traitor. And and I came to really embrace that as a really positive thing and, and to think about, oh, yeah, I want to develop, I want to be a gender traitor. I want to develop a traitorous identity to patriarchal manhood. Um, and so I want to I kind of destabilise men's connection to masculinity and manhood. And 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 because I really think that if, if patriarchy and hegemonic masculinity at the heart of the problem we have to find ways to disentangle ourselves from from patriarchy and from our complicity with patriarchy and for me that means destabilizing our connections to masculinity now that is not a um a very popular i don't see a populist movement developing around that um, and but i increasingly it, come to believe that that's our only hope 
Yeah. No, and I mean, I feel like practically speaking, that that is quite easy for me to visualize because I suppose it is about reducing the trying to reduce the kind of pressures and expectations around yeah. being a man, basically, yeah. isn't it, in day to day life? Um, yeah. And, and um, even even I mean, I could, there's one of the questions I often ask men is, look, when do you most feel like a man? Uh, you did, and I, I said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, I mean, do you feel like a, a man at every waking moment? Do you feel like a man right now? Are you being manly and masculine as we're having this conversation? Uh, no. So what, what's the context in which you most feel like a man? Are there particular situations where you're more conscious of being a man than others? And and when they start to think about it, they they realise that, in fact, they move in and out of it. They, they don't actually feel like a man all the time, although sometimes they feel they have to live up to the expectations of being a man and they often find themselves wanting and failing that they don't live up to those expectations. But they realise that sometimes they don't actually, not even always conscious of their gendered subjectivity. And so then, oh, okay, so if they can, if they can grasp that they move in and out of it and that they're flexible, then that's a, a shift in the right direction that, you know, we don't have to always affirm our masculinity our, or, or affirm that what we do, because we do it as men, it becomes masculine. And that's the problem I have with trying to develop a masculine mode of caring, you know, that if, 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 if when we care and nurture and express compassion, that's caring masculinity. Well, what... Why is that different from what women do? What, what, what's particularly masculine about compassion and care? Um, you know, and so I find the notion of caring masculinity a, a, a kind of a problematical notion for me. And, you know, the need to, to then separate it out. And then if men express compassion and care and empathy, the, given the way patriarchy works, that will be celebrated, exalted, and will be privileged above women expressing expressing care and empathy and compassion. It'll be more valued in the way that men's work is always more valued than women's work. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's change tack a little um, at that point because um, we do um, in now and men often like to. Um, talk a little bit about uh, people's kind of personal stories and backgrounds mm. as well. And so um, obviously you've been involved in kind of pro-feminist anti-violence research and activism for a, a long time. And so I was just wondering if you could perhaps tell us a little bit about how you kind of came to be involved in this in this work in the first place. Yeah, sure. I, in the 1970s, I was a, a student of social work in Tasmania. And the 70s in Australia was the time of very much of second wave feminism. And I was in a relationship with a woman who was discovering feminism. And what many women did in the 70s in particular was they formed consciousness raising groups. They, they, and my then partner would go off to a women's CR group and she would come back from the group. She would be angry and, about patriarchy. And, and I was the man in the room. And she would start challenging me and confronting me. And, and I, I had left-leaning politics. I was involved in social justice issues. And intellectually, feminism just sat comfortably with me. It fitted with my left politics. And But when I realised that what she was really saying was that I had to be more emotionally accessible to her. I had to do my share of the housework. I had. To, I remember one stage I, I said to her, look, I haven't got time to do the housework this week 
because I'm organising this group of men for gender equality. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, well, that, that didn't go down so well, you know. Uh, and so, so she would, you know, be challenging and confronting with me as a man, and 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 I thought, oh, gee, look, I've really good. And this was before there was any conferences about masculinity. There were no men's groups on the horizon, no books about men. But I, I got together with a few other men who were partners of feminist women. Um, and we said, look, maybe we we need to get together and, and try and talk about what we do about what women are saying about patriarchy and about what, what it means for us. So that was the beginning stage for me of getting together with a group of men who are partners of feminist women to come together in a group. And we tried to mirror what we thought the women were doing. We called it an anti-sexist men's consciousness raising group. And so we'd, we'd choose a topic like fatherhood or housework or paid work or violence or masculinity. or um, And we would come and talk about it. And um, usually around a... a um, glass of wine and a meal and, and we would we would discuss personal issues and connect with it and and the group gradually grew started with four of us and over a period of some time became 20 and then the tension started developing in the group that we would later identify as different factions of men's movement politics and one group of men thought hey our life is pretty difficult as well and with there's pain in our lives too and, and we're not even say how privileged and powerful we are but i don't always feel that powerful and i've got pain and i have a difficult life and so maybe you know we should be talking more about the way we feel limited and stunted you know as men another group admits oh that's all bourgeois self-indulgence we need to organize politically against the patriarchy and be out in the streets and 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 i was part of the small group of men who started to think look the privilege and power on the one hand and the pain on the other were two sides of the same coin and let's try to make some sense of that and so the group split in three ways one group <laughs> went off to set up a little support group for men about how difficult it was being a man and that would also then you know morph into mythopoetic robert Bly politics and men's rights stuff and men's liberation another group didn't want to look at the personal lives at all and were mirroring kind of left politics at the time and not looking at personal relationships but just trying to organize politically and i was part of this group that we thought look we don't know quite what the other way is but let's read what women are saying about men so we set up a reading group on feminist theory which was an unusual thing to do for a group of men to read feminist books. And, and it was not without controversy. Um, women didn't know what to make of these four men who were reading feminist books. They didn't know whether to applaud it, to celebrate it, to say how wonderful it was, or, or should they be deeply suspicious or even hostile because these were written for women. And we, as, were we as men going to learn how to be more sophisticated in our oppression and manipulation of women and so but through that process of reading these books reflecting on our lives we we started to get a better grasp of what women were saying about men we started to understand feminism or what it might mean for us and and that was the beginning of a journey that led me and other men to create a more public force of a group called men against sexism 
where we started to publish newsletters and do media interviews and organize forums and and then later when i moved to to melbourne in um, 89 was a time that the white ribbon campaign had been set up in canada uh, following the montreal massacre and i'd met michael kaufman um, on a visit to canada and i came back and said look you know we need to be doing these addressing the issue of men's violence and so we set up a group called men against sexual assault in the early 90s we organized marches by men so we did go into the political into the streets with banners and and um and and traditional political activity but we also ran workshops and ran groups and got involved in public media work and started to develop white ribbon campaign in australia long before it became government sponsored and went through all sorts of problems um but when it was a grassroots movement um it was a good catalyst for organizing men and and then parallel to all that i was um in involved i it was that this was a, a radical time in australia in the 70s and 80s we had a labor government in power progressive politics was happening on the community level the social movements and i was involved in social movement activity i was then becoming an academic um got a job in a, a university that had a very strong feminist um orientation and and was um encouraged to address men's resistance to the feminist content in the curriculum and so i was encouraged to develop an elective course on working with men in masculinities and social work and and that that then led me into a phd on thinking through the the question about what just as you asked that question of me i became curious and interested in what are the other pathways by which men find themselves supportive of feminism you know what what and so i became i set up a collaborative inquiry group of self-identified pro-feminist men to come together to talk about our journeys into pro-feminism and to discuss our politics and um and how do we relate to the women's movement to the gay liberation movement how do we respond to the male backlash that was coming through in the mythopoetic and men's rights wings of the movement and and um yeah so that was kind of a whole lot of they were very heady days <laughs> you know politically and intellectually and um no yeah yeah that's amazing because uh, i mean you know to think now i feel like for men who want to get involved in this work now it's perhaps easier in some way you know i can't imagine what it would have been like in the time when there was no like writing about this or you know yeah. pre-existing work on this so obviously now it's like we're building on the work yeah. that people like you have been doing for a decade and obviously what women have been doing for decades yeah. um but i mean yeah i mean do you think connecting to what you were just saying do you think there were any particular factors in your kind of personal background and uh, you know when you were growing up for example which you think might have played a role in kind of contributing to you getting involved in this kind of work um yeah, look, I, I'm well. I I come come out of a working class background, um, and I left school at fourteen. Worked in timber yards and factories for the first five six years of my working life. So I went back to university as a mature age student uh, initially through night school, and then moving into university. Um, and I think that my and I was in, in before I became involved and engaged with gender issues as I was involved in social justice politics. So I think the social justice politics and the class politics that 
form part of my work meant that I was intellectually more receptive to what women were saying. I think also at a personal level, I had a, I didn't have a close relationship with my own father and becoming a parent. I, I remember when my partner was pregnant for the first time and I can remember thinking, Oh, and this was before we knew what the sex of the of the child was going to be. And I remember thinking to myself, and I surprised myself, oh, I hope we have a girl. Because I think as a father, I thought I could be a different kind of dad to a girl, like go girl. You know, I can inspire her, empower her, and say, that, you know, you can, you can achieve what you want in the world and break the traditional confines of femininity. And I thought to myself, if she's pregnant with a son, how am I going to do the father-son relationship differently? I, I, my own relationship with my father was a, was not a close one. And, um, and the father-son relationship was one of the cornerstones of men's relationship with men and a patriarchy and even the, you know, the language of patriarchy comes out of, you know, that kind of, um, that, that sort of paternal authority and the, the rule of the father. And, and, and it, it frightened me. It frightened me because I thought, now, how am I going to do fatherhood with a son differently? And, and you know, it was a huge relief when our first child was a, was a girl because I didn't have to face that problem for another four years when I would have a son. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think, though, that, um, yeah, I mean, some men get involved in anti-sexist politics because they have a nurturing, caring father who models an alternative way of being a man. But some, like myself, um, get involved through empathising with their mother, you know. And I, I, I empathise with my mother as a as a boy. I think it's I, so I disidentified with my father at some at a critical point. I think in my own development, I disidentified with his rage and anger, and the way that I felt that he put my mother down, and something about empathising with my mother. I think maybe left me more responsive to then the kinds of issues that later in life women would bring to my notice and attention. You know, I didn't feel I needed to. Um, I needed to kind of feel a loyalty to men, and and often this is the problem. This is the the difficulty with moving men towards a more feminist position is that many men feel that they would be betraying men. They, they, they would be disloyal to men, you know. And, and I mean, we had some years ago here, there was a major anti-violence campaign where men were asked about uh, their awareness of this campaign and, and were asked about if they discovered that their best male friend in Australia, you know, referred to as a mate, if they discovered that their best mate was abusive and violent to a woman, would they challenging and confronting? The majority of men said they wouldn't. And that was pretty shocking. They wouldn't because they would feel they were betraying men. And so in some ways, to disidentify with a particular kind of patriarchal masculinity is part of the process. And I, and I guess at some point in my life, I was able to do that. And that was important part of that journey for me personally. 
you've mentioned several times, um, you know, connections with anti-violence work. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I wonder what some of the challenges or tensions you've experienced or observed as a man involved in that area might might be. And whether mm -hmm. you have advice for men who, who want to get involved in that area, either as, as activists or, or researchers. Yeah, I think the, 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 the first thing is absolutely to make the work accountable to women. So, so when we set up Men Against Sexual Assault, and before we organised any kind of anti-violence campaign or any sort of march, we would consult widely with the key activists in the sexual assault movement, the Centres Against Sexual Assault. So we would consult with them, we would ask, we would ask them for input into the work we were doing. Um, when we started running the patriarchy awareness workshops with men, we would pay women to act as observers of the groups. So that um, we, if I was invited to do a workshop with men around engaging men in violence prevention, I would only do it in the presence of women. I would never do it, men only. Um, because uh, for, for many reasons, one, because um, Women are rightly cautious, suspicious, sometimes even hostile towards men doing this work because so many men have so-called male allies have not been able to walk the walk and have discredited themselves and the work they've been doing by failing to um, take account of what women have done by by privileging their own work by um, taking credit that wasn't their due and um, and and so making the work accountable to women has been really really important and um, and doing it in the presence of women where women can see what the work that we were doing. So, I mean, when we first started doing these workshops, women were really sceptical. But after a couple of them came along and saw how we worked with the men, they then went back to other feminist colleagues and said, look, these guys are, are really trying to, they're putting their heart into this, they're, they're really challenging the men, they're doing really important work. And, and so that created a sense of partnership with those women then. We were able to work together. I think that's one of the critical issues. But that was not without controversy. When we, we started inviting women along, some men said, oh, look, um, men won't be able to talk freely in the presence of women. Men will self-censor. Men won't be able to talk. And we would say, yeah, well... Um, you know, part of the problem is men feeling that they, they don't need to self-censor and that they can they can be abusive and, and tell rape jokes and, and, you know, that this is part of the, the process for men to learn how to, to, to be in the presence of women. And, and, um, and so, so I'd say that is one, one of the critical issues. I, I guess another thing is to, there's a, tender, there's a way of trying to engage men which is to reassure men that they're not part of the problem. Like the idea is that you don't want men to get too defensive and you don't want men to feel they're being attacked or challenged. And so the strategy is to say, look, it's not you guys, you're the good guys. 
It's those other men out there. And we want you on side to challenge those other men out there. Um, and that kind of strategy suggests to me that encourages men not to see ourselves, the so-called good men, because we're not abusive and violent, physically violent, that we're not somehow part of the problem. And and I increasingly came to feel in the, from the very early days that until we acknowledged our complicity with the problem, we would never be part of the solution. That we could, if we couldn't see ourselves as part of it, then there was no moral imperative to want to address it. If we were the good men, we were somehow separate from all the patriarchy and, and, um, and we were just weren't going to work as allies with women to challenge those bad men, we wouldn't be reflective and mindful about our own privilege, our own power, our, um, the way that we stuff up in so many ways and that the way that we are flawed as human beings as part of being socialised into patriarchy. So we, we have to acknowledge that complicity. And, and, and that means allowing ourselves, and comes back to an early comment about being more emotionally engaged, it means allowing ourselves to feel almost wounded I mean, my first engagement with feminism was a, a sense of a carrying a wound in that I, I felt I became more conscious of my previous behaviour that I felt ashamed of. I became more aware of my complicity um, and, and that was a created discomfort, even distress at times. And, and so, I, and that's not an easy thing for men to move through. And men want to avoid it. But I don't see how we can avoid it. I don't see how we can avoid that discomfort, that pain, or what I call a wound, um, if we're going to move forward. If we somehow or other think we've got, all, got it all together, we're enlightened, we're, we're, we're kind of um, got this um, enlightened sense of being good men, pro-feminist men, we espouse the right politics, but but we don't really get the way that we're entangled and caught up with the problem. I, I think we're more likely to make mistakes, we're more likely to fail, we're more likely to give women reason not to trust us. I mean, why, why for you then, why is it that men should want to uh, do that, basically? You know, what, what case would you make to men about, you know, what what's in it for us or, or what, what are the reasons why, you know, they would want to, I mean, you know, you've written a whole book about privilege. Hmm. Um, you know, why is it that men should want to undo our own privilege um, and other forms of privilege as well, I suppose? <laughs> yeah. Look, I think strategically there are times when I will draw men's attention to some of the impacts that privilege has on men themselves. Like I, I won't shy away from saying, look, Men, on average, in this country at least, will die eight years earlier than women will, uh, on average. Uh, the more controlling you are as a man, the more likely you are to have heart attacks. Um, you know, I will draw men's attention to higher suicide rates, higher levels of drug addiction, um, alcohol and um, tobacco and, and drug consumption. I will draw men's attention to some of the costs that patriarchy has on men and privilege has on men in terms of our, our humanness and our humanity as part of the, the engagement so that men can see that um, 
that this is impacting on us negatively as well. Yes, we get all the sort of benefits and privileges out of being men. Um, and most men who do the cost-benefit analysis would say the privileges outweigh the, the negatives. But I want to heighten men's awareness and consciousness that there are negatives. Um, and I will talk about, you know, we'll have better relationships with our children. Um, you know, we'll have a higher level of intimate connection with, with our partner, whether it's a man or a woman. Um, we will feel more alive, more emotionally connected. You know, that there are, there are those positive things. But and, and I will at times also remind men about the impact patriarchy has on the women we love. And, and this limit, that can only take us so far. But, but men who are fathers, who are sons, who are brothers, you know, that when they, some men become involved in anti-sexist work because their sister was raped. Um, you know, or they, they watched the way their mother was abused by their father. And so so women that they love being treated badly um, will, and abusively will encourage some men, some of the, the anti-violence activists, prominent anti-violence activists in Australia had either their sister or their daughter murdered, you know. And so that, that, that kind of horrific homicidal violence is what brought them to realize that you know that the significance so i will i will talk about about that and but um i will also though talk about the ethics and the politics of it but even if if it wasn't in our interests and our relational interests that you know if you want to be an ethical being in the world if you want to live an ethical life um then you've you've really got to acknowledge the unearned entitlements and advantages that come to you through your, whether it be your masculinity or the colour of your skin, um, that these are unearned advantages. They're, they're, they're entitlements that come to you by virtue of your membership of a group, a particular group. And, um, and for you not to acknowledge and recognise that you can't really be an ethical being. You can't really live an ethical life. And and so, and getting that balance right between the kind of men's relational interests with women, the, the cost that it has on men, the, the social justice politics, you might bring one or more of those to the fore at different times and different men will be at different places. Um, but going back to what I was saying before, that I know that talking about this in and of itself is not going to shift men dramatically that it, it's when you are able to create a an emotional sense of connectedness with the issues that that mm. men become most receptive to change um mm. my experience and that's why the the workshops have been really important in my, the work that i've been doing uh yeah one thing i was wondering i suppose given given that obviously the issues you're dealing with are, are quite distressing, you know, if we're talking about, you know, men's violence towards women or the climate crisis and the a growing impending sense of doom, I suppose, around that. Like, um, what, what do you do to try and, like, maintain a sense of hope or, or to keep, you know, what keeps you going? What keeps you motivated in, in doing this work? Look, it, it's a good question. And I, I'm reminded of a, a statement by the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci who, who talked about um, 
pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will um, so that you know um, that one can be through one's mind that one can be very pessimistic about the future um, um, particularly if you know if I reflect on 45 years of, of involvement with the issue of men's violence against women I went to my first conference in 1970 so we're now talking um you know now 75 i think it was so it's, it's now sort of over you know 45 years later and i don't see any major significant shifts and changes that have occurred in addressing the problem you know more government policies around prevention more awareness higher levels of um reporting but escalating levels of violence continue on it's hard not to feel intellectually pessimistic about our prospect of really significantly making inroads into addressing the problem. But then when you're an activist and when you've got a history of activism and you, you there's a particular point where there's no turning back. You know, there's a particular point where you have to believe that the actions you do in the world make a difference, and um, and one of the things that will come, one of the things that keeps me going, I think, um, is that I'll click on my email one morning, and someone in Spain or in Portugal or in Hong Kong will have stumbled across something I wrote, and and say how it, they felt inspired by it, and and it, it affirms something in them, and they just say, reach out and say thank you for the work you're doing, and and so that that gives me a sense that you know words have resonance and nowadays a lot of my activist work is in intellectual work of, of writing and um that that words can can shift and, and connect with people in particular ways and and that gives me a sense that there's at least some resonance of to those words and and you know and i'm and i'm inspired by inspired by the the resurgence of um you know young people against um global warming and the the resurgence of movements like black lives matter and the the me too movement i you know i i see where social movement politics are coming back into play again after many many years of them being kind of marginalized and 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 i do think that that if we're going to get any shifts in government it's going to be come from civil society putting pressure on the state um and you know i remember a piece i read some years ago that the governments that had the most progressive anti-violence policies were those that had the strongest social movement activities autonomous women's movement you know and men can work as allies with those movements so i have some hope about civil society um, and grassroots politics and putting pressure on the state. Not much hope about our politicians um, unless they are pressured to change from below, collective action from below. So I think, you know, that, that's what we need to be fostering, working more in civil society and, and building movements um, that can put pressure on, on government. Yeah, no, absolutely. I totally agree. <laughs> 
Thanks so much, Bob. I mean, I, I could listen and talk to you all day, really. But uh, you've given us a great insight into your work, um, you know, the journey that you've been on. And I, I think yeah. it's really important for, for other people, other men in particular, to hear that. And I, mm. you know, My aspiration for this podcast is that these ideas become more, um, right. more well-known, disseminated um, mm. as a result of talks like this. So I just wanted yeah. to thank you for, for what you've done and for um, talking to us today. Great. Yeah, absolutely. I've enjoyed the thank conversation and, and the question, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, so that was a really interesting conversation with Bob, wasn't it, Sandy? I mean, you were actually at Com COP26, weren't you? I believe you cycled there. Do you want to say a little bit about, about that experience? Oh, well, Stephen, I can tell you about cycling to COP26 through... Uh, wind, rain, uh, even flooding, you know, which was seemed a bit ironic given we were on our way to COP26. But but really, it was nothing in comparison to what Bob was describing around the bushfires in uh, in Australia. But, mm. um, but I really connected with what he was saying about, um, you know, social movements, the importance of social movements and, and how they, they have resurged recently i mean obviously in the uk context we've got um you know extinction rebellion we've got black lives matter and these are also global movements um mm. but what he had to say about their uh inspiration really um spoke to me because i was there i talked to uh quite a significant number of activists on the fringes and mm. really when you talk to them and you hear their stories the power of their uh, commitment, their activism, it, mm. that's actually what gives you hope in this pivotal moment. So what did you think? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree, because it is very easy to feel gloomy, isn't it, when you think how much there is that we need to do and how little was achieved compared to that at COP. Even though there were some steps forward, like it didn't seem like there was anywhere near enough. But I agree that it does feel like these social movements around environmental activism and other social movements that Bob mentioned, that, as you say, it feels like that is where change is going to come from. And um, so, yeah, I suppose it gives me the sense of, of motivation to, to do whatever I can um, to support those movements, really, and to reflect on, you know, I actually find Bob quite inspiring because he's been doing this work for decades. You know, he's been a real trailblazer. As we mentioned, he's people like him have, have done that work for others to build on. Um, and he, he, you know, he is an academic, um, but he very much is also so about putting the, his kind of theory in, into practice uh, in the real world through activism, through, you know, working with men um, as well. So I think that is a real kind of, you know, he is a bit of a, an inspiration for me in, in that respect. And um, I suppose it shows both, you know, how, how we as men need to reflect on these things, but also then go out there and, and help to create change, really. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, too, um, how he put emphasis on men's relationship with nature. So he wasn't just talking about the climate crisis. He was talking about what is also simultaneously an ecological crisis. And I think that point is really sometimes overlooked, that these two are intertwined and, and equally important. And, uh, yeah, I found that important, too. Absolutely. Yeah, it's about much more than just climate change, actually, isn't it? It is our whole, the way that we as humans, the way we as men relate to to nature. And yeah, absolutely. But yeah, thank you, uh, everyone for listening. And um, we'll, I'm sure we'll have more episodes on this topic in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Now and Men. Any references we mentioned will all be in the show notes. You're welcome to email us at nowandmen at gmail.com if you'd like to ask us questions or suggest a guest. 
and we're really keen that the podcast should be listened to by as many people as possible to encourage more men to think about issues of masculinity and gender equality. So please do follow Now and Men so the latest episode drops in your podcast feed as soon as it's released. You can also leave a review and share it among your friends and colleagues and look out for our next episode coming soon. So you take care, take care of each other and speak to you again soon.